0: So our scripture today is the second half of second samuel twenty one beginning in verse fifteen. As I mentioned last week we've we've really we've come to the last section uh in reality we've come to the last section of first and second Samuel uh, in the in the Hebrew Bible, they're just considered one book uh we've divided it for the English uh well probably earlier than English, but this last section, often, as I said last week, it's sort of, people will skip it. It seems like an appendix. It seems unnecessary. It seems like a downer, uh, and it feels like if you just jump from chapter 20 to First Kings 1, it feels like that flows very well. Uh, but as I pointed out, uh, this this section isn't just a random uh, smattering of things the author forgot to bring up earlier, but he actually has arranged it in a pretty intentional way. And uh, we talked about, or I talked, you listened, about uh, chiastic structure, uh, which is just named after the Greek letter X. And so in chiastic structuring, uh, the first and the last match and then the second and then the second to last will match up, and then the third and third to last, and so on and so on. And so we saw how, uh, or we'll see, how this, these four chapters do that. Chapter uh, the, the first section that we looked at last week and the last section, chapter 24, they are similar in theme and story. Uh, this section that we're in today... And the second to last section, they are similar in that uh, it's looking at the accomplishments, not so much of David, but the accomplishments of David's uh, faithful servants, uh, his uh, mighty men, his warriors. And then in the middle, there are two different songs of David. Uh, and so, uh, so it's, it's something that the author didn't just kind of throw together at the end. He has some intentionality in it. And we recognize that, you know, not all Scripture is uh, as exciting to read, not all Scripture is, is as fun to read or as uh, immediately uh, apparent what the purpose is, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. And all Scripture, we're told, is profitable for instruction or correction or reproving or training Uh, And so this passage is not unlike any of those others, although it might not be as easy to understand. Uh, Part of what makes this passage less easy to understand is how easy it is to understand. It's a pretty straightforward passage. Today we're looking at the valiant acts of four of David's men in their uh, slaying of giants. In fact, very similar to David's slaying of the giant Goliath uh, in 1 Samuel 17. And what we see here, if anything else, if nothing else, we see that uh, when David slayed the giant Goliath, that was not the end of the fight in many ways. Apparently, that was simply the beginning of the fight. So let's stand and read this section, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 to 22. There was war again between the Philistines and and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, The son of jer the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So when it comes to Christian writing and even, even some non-Christian writing, uh, there seem there seem to be no shortage of books uh, that make use of facing your giants metaphors. Uh, you can you can face your giants internally; they could be anger or procrastination or uh, Worry or fear, you could face uh, your giants externally. They could be uh, difficult circumstances or or even difficult people. Uh, you can face your giants uh, in in your marital struggles. Uh, you can even you can even face your giants when it comes to uh, competition in business. Uh, when David faced giants, Uh, they were, well, giants. They weren't a metaphor for anything. They were giants. They were uh, gargantuan, colossal men of strength. And uh, more than their size was that they had set themselves as enemies of God and therefore enemies of God's people. And sometimes we re- we reverse that, and it's important to remember that these, the Philistines, were enemies of God's people because they were enemies of God. They despised the things of God, and therefore they despised the people of God. And so we look at this passage, and we see, uh, first of all, that uh, that first section, a little too close for comfort, uh, Then we'll look at all four of them just in sort of uh, an understanding of the the ongoing, unimaginative attacks of Satan. And then third, we're going to look at that last phrase, by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So the first and the fourth giant mentioned, they received the most ink, uh, which is interesting. And no, I don't. I mean, I looked it up. I didn't bother writing it down. There's a word for it when you have six fingers and six toes. Like, it's a polydexty something or other. Uh, I don't know. Um, I think, like, this isn't a statement about, this isn't a statement about, like, disability or anything. It's more of a statement about, like, it's to emphasize the, it's a, it's a deforming of the nature of what God created. Uh, so it's just more of a, and of course he had six fingers. Of course he would. I mean, he despised all things God. But let's come back to this first one. There's a there's a war between the Philistines and the Israelites. It's interesting, if you remember all the way back in one Samuel 17, uh, Goliath had announced that if they could defeat him, the Philistines would surrender. Do you remember that? Like the Philistines said, defeat our champion we'll surrender. But if our champion defeats your champion, you surrender. And then this, if nothing else, shows us, you can't trust uh, wickedness to keep their word. You can trust, actually, uh, the wicked to not keep their word. You can be pretty sure that that's going to happen. But here they are. They face the Philistines again. David leads his men out and they fight. And David grew weary. You know, if this were, again, my son keeps telling me that Someone needs to put this together in just a giant uh, made for tv uh, series. I keep explaining to them, if you do that, if you do it right, the non-Christians won't watch it because it's too faithful to Scripture. And if you do it right and you're faithful to Scripture, the Christians won't be able to watch it because of how uh, uh, vulgar it will be. And so nobody would watch it. But... If it were to happen, this scene—you can see how it would unfold. The the battle on the like raging, and and David probably up on a horse, and maybe he starts to slip off, and his you know his sword isn't singing quite as as valiantly as it was. And then across the field, there's this—he's probably on like one of those Budweiser horses, like this giant on a giant horse, and he's like his horse probably has like steel hooves and stuff and and like it the horse itself is killing Israelites and he sees that he has a chance to kill David and so he just starts charging through the men and there's just blood and mud flying everywhere from under the See, I told you you wouldn't be able to watch it and and he would raise his spear with a seven and a half pound spearhead that's how big this spear was and just as he's about to let loose Abishai Abishai who you know we don't really know what to think of Abishai, Joab's brother. Sometimes he's all right, sometimes he's not, but regardless, he was committed to David. Maybe he was a sinner committed to David. Maybe we should think, well, that doesn't seem abnormal. But so here's Abishai and he kills the giant just in time. And the and the you know, the, the giant falls, as it happens in all the movies. You know, once the giant falls, then the whole army falls apart. You know, you kill the, destroy the Death Star, and suddenly nobody knows what to do, so everyone goes home. Apparently, that's all it takes. You kill the giant, the war is over. But that's what happens. And, and so everyone's happy, or, well, maybe not happy. They're relieved at best. But david's men feel like this was a little too close for comfort, and they uh, they get David to promise that he will not go out into battle again with them that they will go out in battle, they will go and fight, they will lose their lives in protection of the king and in protection of the kingdom, but they don 't want David to come out they say lest the Because if you die, they say it will quench the lamp of Israel. And at first I would read that and I was like, oh, that's nice. You know, David's called the lamp of Israel. And uh, so then I was like, oh, we can get a lot of distance out of that because, you know, he's not the actual lamp. And so, but that's not what they said, is it? They said, if you die, you will quench the lamp of Israel. He's connected to the lamp of Israel, the light of Israel, but he's not the light of Israel. And it's interesting, the lamp of Israel is in the tabernacle. Uh, Do you know that the priests, one of the priestly duties in the tabernacle was to keep a lamp burning 24 hours a day. That lamp was never to go out. And it represented that the light of Israel would never go out. As long as God's people would come and worship God, come and confess their sins to God, the light of God's presence would never be extinguished. And and. David's men recognized that if the king, the anointed one of God, were to fall, then the lamp of Israel would be extinguished. They recognized that this was a very close call. And you and I know just how close a call it was. Like, we know it's, it's more than just a nationality thing, isn't it? Like, if David dies... There's no Jesus. Like, we know that, that there's, a, there's a lot on the line. We know that there's more on the line than, than they know. And isn't this true throughout Scripture and even beyond Scripture? Like, what, what would have happened if Pharaoh hadn't returned Abraham's wife, Sarah? What would have happened? Well, there's no Isaac and no Jesus. What would have happened if Esau had successfully killed his conniving brother? Well, there's no Jesus. What if Joseph is actually executed for the alleged crime of attempted rape, which is actually the normal sentence for a slave? Or if Pharaoh's daughter just lets the Hebrew baby float on by? What happens if Ruth takes Naomi's advice and goes back home to her family to find another husband and raise some good Moab children? Or if Joseph follows through with dismissing his betrothed when he finds out that she's oddly pregnant? What happens If the plot to assassinate Paul works, like what happens to the spread of the gospel if Paul is assassinated as the Jews wanted? Or if the young German had followed his father's wishes and went into law, we would never have the Reformation. Or more personally for me, if a captain in the U.S. Army dies just like his driver did when their Jeep drove over a buried howitzer in Vietnam. What would happen? Well, you'd have a better preacher here, at least. But, And I'm sure you can think of other missionary accounts, or even in your own life, what would have happened? All the things that, like, they're just such close calls. And if if this would have happened, and if this would have happened, like, what, what would have come of that? And in one sense, you know, we say, like, well, we have to trust God and his providences. I mean, you have to trust that God is in, in control of these things. But, yes, you have to trust God, but he also tells you, yeah, you also have to live faithfully. I mean, you still have to make wise decisions and wise choices. The servants of David are so committed to fighting for the Lord's anointed that they would rather lose their lives than see the lamp of Israel extinguished. Do you and I feel that way? Would we rather lose our lives than see the light of Christ extinguished? David, as as the Lord's anointed, reminds us that we too are called to a full commitment to the anointed one, to Christ. Jesus calls you and me to take up our cross every day and follow him in Mark chapter 8. He tells us that anyone who would lose his life for the sake of Christ and the gospel will find it in Matthew 16. But David, as a man, reminds you and me that that we can get tired, can't we? Like the battle is very wearying at times. You were not meant, you weren't created, you weren't designed to face your battles alone. You weren't designed to face trials alone. Weakness is not a flaw in the design it's actually intentional so that we would rely on each other i love in galatians where it says hey each one of you needs to bear his own burdens and then it says each one of you needs to bear each other's burdens and so or in hebrews chapter 3 exhort each other every day as long as it's called today so i don't know about you but I have not yet woken up on a day in my 50 years of life experience that it wasn't today. So, as long as it's still today, exhort each other. Encourage each other. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, Moses had Aaron and her uh, supporting him. Daniel had Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego praying with and for him. Paul had Barnabas and Timothy and Silas and Priscilla and Aquila. Luther had Melanchthon. We were not designed to go through this alone. David's men understood that, and David even understood it. Do we understand that, that it's it's not just a privilege, it's, it's a command that we would bear each other's burdens and care for one another. Second, we look at this and we just see, we can't help but notice just the ongoing unimaginative attack. Certainly one thing that the passage reminds us of is the never-ending, sometimes monotonous battle between good and evil, right and wrong, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent you know i was going to say that this is sort of a battle between god and satan but only in satan's mind because when we talk about these things as if you know good and evil god and satan we act we may unwittingly put satan at the same level as god and certainly satan's attacks are against god but he's not he's not the formidable enemy of god that we make him out to be satan attacks you and me But in his attacking of you and me, he is attacking God, just as the Philistines. In their attacking of David, or their attacking of Israel, is a hatred of God. Satan is not a creator, though. It's not that Satan is at the same level as God. Satan, uh, if anything, is a distorter. Satan is a... uh, perverter of the creation. In fact, so if I could just geek out for a minute here. So J.R.R. Tolkien uh, displays this very well in The Lord of the Rings. So I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, but orcs aren't uh, a unique creation. They're a perversion, a distortion of elves. Orcs, so you look at elves and you look at orcs and you realize, oh, they're very similar. Uh, Then you realize, oh, and then that's also true of of Ents and Trolls. Trolls uh, were uh, created as a perversion or a distortion of the Ents, like these giant troll beings and the giant tree shepherds. Uh, The uh, dwarfs and goblins so both dwell underground, so goblins are just a distortion of dwarfs. And then there's men, so what's the, what's the distortion, what's the evil distortion of men in Lord of the Rings? It's right, men, which is pretty clever, I think. So the evil distortion of men in Lord of the Rings is just men. It's just men who've given in to evil. We've decided. I'm going to side with. It looks like evil's going to win. I'm going to go on that side so I know you're you're thinking, well, what about the hobbits? Well, the hobbits are more like the innocent, smaller version of men. And you might say that Gollum is the evil version, but he's not really the evil version. He's just sort of, he was led astray and like he made some bad choices. And I know that he's burning in Mordor forever. So like, I'm not saying that like, it's just, you know, a victim of his environment. Anyway, I'm just, let's, so let's, I said it was a brief geek out. So that's all. We're going to stop there. So why, all right, so why giants? Why does Satan attack with giants? Um and why does he keep attacking with giants? So he attacks with giants because uh it's this this picture of like there's nothing bigger than creation. Like there's nothing more than what you're facing here. I mean there's it's it is this giant presence that that you can't get around or get over. And and it's he continues to attack giants because though he may be cunning, he's just not that creative. And as a reminder that facing a giant early on meant David would face giants again and again and again, that defeating one giant didn't mean that they would keep their word and he would never face this battle again. The enemy of God will stop at nothing to destroy the Lord's anointed. That's his goal. If he can't do that, he will simply seek to destroy the servants of the Lord's anointed. And if he can't do that, he will settle for taunting and discouraging the servants of the Lord's anointed. You and I face a relentless enemy who will never give up. He will never stop. There is no ceasefire. In Luke, when the temptation of Jesus is described, uh, as it when it ends, we're told that uh, the devil went away until an opportune time. So it's not that the devil went away and gave up. He went away until there was a better opportunity to tempt Jesus. Satan can use Unbelieving people doubting families, betraying and denying friends, just as he did in Jesus' life. Unbelieving people doubting friends and family, denying close ones. What does Jesus say to Peter when Peter tries to scold Jesus when he begins to talk about his own arrest and death? Do you remember? Uh, it's in Matthew 18. Peter, Jesus, for the first time, explains to his disciples, you know, the Son of Man is going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten, flogged, and put to death. On the third day, he'll rise again. And then Peter, we're told, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. He says, hey, let's not be talking like that. You're going to drive the crowds away. What does Jesus say to Peter? Do you remember? Yeah, get behind me, Satan. That should be sobering. Like, that should be humbling for all of us. Satan can use you and me to bring down other believers. Satan can still use you and me. I'm not saying he can, you know, possess us, but he apparently can use us to discourage the work of the kingdom. Maybe. Uh, We should consider that the next time we think, well, it's just words. She should just get over it. Well, he knows I didn't mean anything by it. Peter says that the devil is like a lion roaming about looking for someone to devour, and we are to resist him. You resist Satan, and he will flee from you. We get that backwards. James says about temptation, you should flee temptation. We would think that the opposite is what we're called to. I mean, Satan, it's Satan. You flee Satan and you just have to resist temptation. But the scriptures say the opposite. You resist Satan and he'll flee from you. You run away from temptation. When you are being tempted You run away from that. You don't resist temptation. You flee temptation. And finally, just briefly, the the hand of David and the hand of his servants. This last verse is so good. These four giants fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. We understand that in military terms, don't we? You've got MacArthur and Patton and Grant and Washington, even men like Lincoln and Churchill and Roosevelt. These men are credited with winning great wars and battles, even though some of these men didn't even set foot on the battlefield, did they? But they led. Under their command, these battles and wars are fought and won. But it's not these men behind desks or uh, at the back of the front line. It's, it was men in the trenches and on the front line who fought and won. You know, the presidents don't earn medals of honor. Or the silver star, or the distinguished service star. Because we know it's not they who put their lives on the line in the end. It was these men who fought for them. These men were motivated, these men here in this passage and men in these great wars, they're motivated and inspired by their king, by their devotion to their king. Their victories were the king's victories, and their losses were the king's losses. Now for these men, their king had set an example for them. That's the interesting thing about these four giants One thing about the four giants is that none of them measure up quite to Goliath, do they? Like Goliath had a 15 pound spearhead. This first giant had a seven and a half pound spearhead. But David sets an example for them. He defeated a bigger, worse giant than they have ever faced. And he did it for them. He did it in their place. He did it as their champion. And it was enough to motivate them to fight with and defeat giants that they faced. Giants with newfangled weaponry. It's interesting. We, our English provides sword. He had, a, he had a seven and a half pound spear and a new sword. It was really just, they don't really know what it was. It was just a new weapon. So it might have been a newfangled weapon. might have been something they'd never seen. Uh, something that would be intimidating. And yet they still defeated him enough to motivate them with giants with newfangled weaponry, giants with 12 fingers and 12 toes. They fought for the honor of their king and their kingdom. And when they died, and they would all die, whether they died on the rocking chair, on the porch, remembering the days of glory, or whether they died in the days of glory themselves, that would be it. They would be buried with honor for certain. But that would be the end of their citizenship in that kingdom. And so are you seeing yet like the greater than aspects of the kingdom of God in this passage? David could only motivate and inspire. Jesus, David's son, yet David's Lord. Yes, he motivates and inspires. He faces enemies that you and I will never have to face because of him. He faced death and separation from God on our behalf. He came as the champion of God to face those things for us so that we wouldn't have to. It should be motivating. It should inspire. But he doesn't just motivate and inspire, does he? He dwells in you as Peter, or as John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus isn't just a motivator. He indwells you with the power that you need to follow him. In Galatians, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, so I no no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so now the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ in you is the hope of glory. People ask me all the time, and some of you may already know this, like, favorite book of the Bible, probably my favorite book of the Bible is 1 Peter. Favorite passage in the Bible, though, is you whether you know it or not, maybe you pick up on it, it's got to be Romans 8. That because of what Christ has done, we can face anything. Because God is for you. God is For you. If it took a 40-year ministry, I would love the legacy of that ministry to be that everyone at Hope of Christ knows God is for me. God is for me. He's not annoyed with me. He's not disappointed in me. He's not sick of me. God is for me. God is for You, he who didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How could he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against you? You, God's elect. God is the one who has justified you. Who can condemn you? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he has been raised. He's at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Who can bring a charge against you? Nobody. Jesus is interceding for you daily. Who could separate you from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure of this, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. God loves you. He is for you. He gave his Son for you. Know that. Believe that. Let it motivate you to live your life to keep the light of Christ from being extinguished. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Sometimes we uh, get it into our heads that Jesus is the loving aspect of the Godhead. But the reality is, Father, you, before the foundations of the world, chose us. In love, you predestined us to be your children. You sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. So great is your love for us. May we never forget that. No matter what we face, no matter how monotonous the trials and temptations are, Holy Spirit, would you give us the wisdom to run from our temptations, and to resist the devil, that he would run from us because of Christ in us. It's in your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen.